welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. All right, it is great to be with you in worship today. I already got started on my coloring. It's going pretty well. There's a maze on the back and uh, there's prizes for, uh, for those who can uh, pay, pay attention to how many times I say certain words. How fun is that? Now, we are in the fourth week of this grand story of God in the book of Ephesians where Paul, what he does, he spends the first half of the book talking about what we're saying, orthopraxy, which is a right living in response to God's holiness and goodness. And then the second half, he's talking about the orthopraxy, the right living, orthodoxy, right thinking, orthopraxy, right living. And in last week in Ephesians 1.10, what we did was talk about Paul's phrase there, what he's saying, God's goal is to unite all things in heaven and earth in who? Messiah Jesus. It's the point of the whole book of Ephesians, and we'll see this aspect of God's grandness in his plan, the story of God in Jesus, highlighted today. Now, right now, up in space is a $10 billion telescope. You may have heard about it. Arrived at its new home a million miles away, the James Webb Telescope. And it unfolds like a giant origami. I don't know if you know this because it was too big, unfolded to fly into space. So they folded it up and shot it into space, unfolded it. And what it's going to do, it's going to be able to beam back images to Earth that are some of the oldest that we had ever been able to see to date, going back nearly 14 billion years, it'll be able to see almost near to the beginning of our universe. Now, what do you think of this amazing feat of humanity? Well, it all depends on your perspective about this. Atheist Jerry Cohn says this. He says, science and faith are fundamentally incompatible. Science helps religion only by disproving its claims. Is that what science does? Is that what advancements do? Well, I think there's another option. I think that each, belie- each amazing feat of humanity gives us the opportunity to believe that we are seeing a glimpse of God's greatness, of his grandeur, of his limitless capacity of this loving creator. How do you see these amazing feats. I think Psalm 102 says it well, verse 25, in the beginning, you, God, laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. You know, when science produces images of billions of galaxies, just let that sink in, hundreds of billions of other galaxies, each galaxy containing hundreds of billions of planets and each one, When we ponder that reality, it makes it even more amazing that we serve this incredible God who so lovingly and so purposefully is crafting our lives. Who is man, God, that you would be mindful of me? And yet he is. And we'll see this in our section today. So let me ask you, do you know this Christ who came down so that you could enter into the vastness of the Father. Scriptures tell us there's a way to come home. So I want to pray what our students have been praying each week. Would you close your eyes and pray with me their prayers? Says God, if there's anything you want to say specifically to me today, I'm willing to listen. I'm open. I'm ready. 
Open our eyes to see you. Soften our hearts with your love. Sharpen our minds with your truth. Guide our feet to walk in your way. Amen. Isn't that a good prayer? Man, we should pray that every day. What a great prayer. We're going to do two things today. Two main points would be this. The implications, first, of being chosen. And secondly, the security of the Spirit. You might want to have the Bible open to Ephesians 1. Take a look at verse 11. Paul says this. He says, in him we have attained an inheritance. Now, literally, that is basically what the language says here in the original Greek. I like actually how the NIV translation, they say, in him we were also chosen. So the idea of chosenness is throughout this section. Now, just to keep in mind, we've been talking about this section, verses 3 through 14. It's part of this beautifully, purposely crafted, run-on sentence of 202 Greek words from the Apostle Paul. It's as if he just can't stop talking about this good and great God. Now, he's being repetitive purposely, not because he's just getting older like me, and I keep just repeating myself that people say I'm doing. He is emphasizing the realities that believers should hold on to. So he repeats himself again and again and again. You've obtained an inheritance. You're an heir. You are chosen. He tells us again and again and again because he doesn't want you or me to forget. You're chosen. You have obtained an inheritance. And now here's the amazing thing is that literally Paul makes a parallel in this section with these ideas. In verse 4 and 11, he says, we are chosen. He says it twice. And then in verse 5 and 11, he says, you're predestined. And then in verses 6 and 11, he says, this is all part of God's joyful purpose. And then in verses 6 and 12, he says, all of this, your chosenness, is in order to bring praise to God. Why is Paul repeating himself and purposely making parallels? He's saying, this is really important for you to hear. And so that's my prayer for us today, that we would know how important it is for us to know we are chosen. We've obtained an inheritance. And this joyful plan includes believers being predestined, as verse 11 says. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Predestined. Okay, now... In the Old Testament, we see God predestining and choosing Israel to be his covenant people. What does that mean, to be a covenant people? Now, when a woman and a man get married, they are making a covenant with God. They're making a promise. They're also making a covenant with the state of California if you get married here as well. There's a lot of legal implications, right? Spiritual implications, relational implications, legal implications. So a covenant is both legal and relational. It's an agreement. In many ways, a parent's covenant to care for their children. If you have children, you're making a covenant to care for them, to to feed them. And hopefully when we get older, our, our kids will covenant, right, to care for us, right? Now, none of this is written down. Maybe it should be written down, right? (laughs) When I get older, I want to make sure you take care of me, right? We have all these unspoken covenants, don't we? Unspoken promises, unspoken agreements. These are covenants, 
promises made. Some of these promises have relational implications. Almost all promises or covenants do. Some have legal implications. Almost all covenants or promises have that as well. And so when we see is here, as Paul is referring to himself and other believers in verse 12, because he says this, he says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. What is he talking about? He again is referring back to the covenant that God made to a particular people, the Jewish people. And Paul is reminding us that he was one of the top Jewish leaders. These are his people. He says, we were the first to hope in Christ. We Jews were the first to put our trust in Christ. Now, if you just remember that, the first Christians were what? Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. They read from the Jewish Bible, the Old Old Testament. Paul's saying we were the first to hope in Christ. Verse 12. But then he's speaking to the non-Jews in Ephesus when he says, in him you also were sealed. Well, who are the you? The non-Jews. The Ephesians, the majority of the Ephesians, the people like us. So Paul is saying... We Jews, we chosen ones in Christ, and you Gentiles were also chosen in Christ. Now, this is a big deal, because Paul grew up and he taught when he was a Pharisee that only the Jews and only those who followed Jewish laws could be saved, could be the chosen. And Paul is saying, there's a new thing going on. Christ is the fulfillment of those promises. And now it's not if you're a Jew or a Gentile, a Jew or a non-Jew. What matters is being in Christ. That makes the difference. That you non-Jews, I'm looking at me because guess what? I'm not Jewish. You may not have noticed. I'm not. And I, in Christ, I could be chosen by God. That's amazing. See, the Jews believed that only those who would follow their laws could be saved. And so those people, the Jews, what they did, they worked hard like Paul to be a good Jew, to stay in good standing with their God. They followed hundreds of Jewish laws to remain clean. And then the non-Jews, the ones who were worshiping the Roman gods in this Greco-Roman culture, they were spending all kinds of time and money trying to prove to these very unpredictable Roman gods and Greek gods that they were good enough. And so they'd make sacrifices to the fertility god and sacrifices to, uh, to the health god and sacrifices to make me rich god, right? You name the problem, they had a sacrifice. And so what Paul is saying that in Christ, there's security and a peace and a comfort and a security that neither he as a Jew and neither you as non-Jews could ever experience before. But now in Christ, it's all possible. Security, peace, and certainty. And so here's the story that even though sin separated us from God, both Jews and non-Jews, God didn't give up on us. God sent his son, Jesus, and he predestined us as adopted sons to join this family legally and relationally, a covenant. None of us deserve this love. 
None of us earned it. None of us, though, can lose it because it was never our efforts that drew God's attention. In Christ, you have security. It was never our efforts that God got God to put his eyes on us. His eyes were on us before we were born, Ephesians 1 says. This unbelievable idea that we're chosen and we are predestined in Christ. Now, I'm going to make a comment about that. In a day and age where we say things like this, and I've said it before, I asked Jesus into my heart. You ever said that? Or maybe you say something like this, well, I gave my life to Christ when I was such and such an age. Those are accurate statements, but it can be a little misleading because we might forget Ephesians 1. We'll say, well, yes, you gave your life to Christ and you chose Christ, but guess what? God's word says that God chose you before the foundation of the world. We can believe falsely that we are the initiators and the sustainers of our own salvation. And that isn't true. Even as God's chosen and predestined, we know and believe that before we became followers of Christ, there was, of course, a need to make a choice to follow Jesus. But God's choice precedes our choice. We never were able to, in our own sinfulness, choose this good God. He had to make a change in us first before we can even choose him. What a mystery this is. Now, I want to make a couple comments about this because this is getting into uh, murky waters. Or how do we understand this idea that God chooses us first and yet we must choose him? Well, first of all, all Christians at a minimum believe that God is involved in our salvation, right? We all can agree about that. God's involved. That's a bare minimum. No Christian believes that God isn't involved. Of course, God's involved, but it's more than being involved. See, most of us are actually quite okay with a sovereign God going against our sin nature. Because guess what? We pray all the time for God's help. God, help me overcome the sin. God, help me not be fearful. Anyone else fearful in here? Is it just me? Okay, just Pastor Tim. I pray all the time, God, help me not to fear. I'm asking God to supersede my natural inclination to fear. God, I want you to change my natural abilities. Or maybe you have prayed something like this that Jesus taught us to pray, not my will, but your will be done. What am I praying? God, I want your wills to supersede my will. I'm asking God to do this. I'm inviting a sovereign God to change me, to do something in me that's not naturally what I want to do. And as Christians, all of us, we love the idea that anyone that we meet might join God's forever family. So you know what you do when you go home? We pray for our friends and family who have not yet called Jesus their Lord and Savior. Do you ever pray for people who aren't saved? I hope you do. We pray for our non-Christians, friends, and family. We, we ask God to change someone's heart. We say, God, I want you to convince them against what they believe right now. I want you to remove barriers. I want your, your truth, God, to win out against their false beliefs. You hear these wonderful prayers? And if God, in his amazing grace, actually answers those prayers, we are actually seeing hearts change. Wills change, desires change, and that's good, that's good news. 
And when God answers that prayer, he is superseding someone's personal autonomy. God is superseding what they naturally want. He is in our prayers as he joins in what we see him doing throughout eternity. He's calling people to himself. He changes people's minds. He changes people's hearts. He removes false belief. He changes their will. In fact, Philippians 2.13 talks about how God is the one in Christians to will and to act. Even your will comes from God when it's good. So when we live in this tension where we're asking God to change someone's heart and mind and even their will, and when we see him do that, we say, amen, because this person has come to faith in you. And who do we give the credit for for that? Well, God. God answering our prayers that someone's heart and mind and even will is now bent towards God. See, God's in control. Isn't that amazing? We're saying, God, we want you to do these things. And he's a good God in doing those things. Now I want to pause for a second. Because Jesus tells people, we see this throughout the Gospels. He says, come, follow me. The way that Jesus preached was, you have a choice. Imagine if Jesus went around in the Gospels and said, I want you to come follow me unless you're not predestined. Does Jesus ever preach that way? Does, does Paul ever go out there and preach that way, saying, I, I want you to put your faith in Jesus, well, unless, unless you're not chosen? Or does Paul ever kind of look at people and say, oh, you're not looking very chosen? Is that how he preached? Paul and Jesus preach as if everyone had a choice. And the amazing, mysterious thing is this. When you gave your life to Christ, like I did, when you put your faith in Jesus, like I did and you did, when you confessed Jesus as Lord, when we chose Jesus, and then we realize God already had chosen us. Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the world. This beautiful idea that before we ever chose him, he chose us. See, Jesus was always inviting people to make a choice to follow him. And so since Jesus did that, I'm going to do that. And Jesus actually taught that praying matters. I don't know exactly how praying matters in the scheme of God's sovereign will, right? But Jesus taught us to pray. So guess what? I'm going to pray. I don't understand it all, but I'm going to do it. Jesus taught us to care for the poor and the hungry. Even though people are going to keep being hungry, we know that. But Jesus says, feed them, care for them, love them. And since Jesus taught it, I'm going to teach it. I'm going to do it. And so I don't understand exactly how this all works out in God's sovereign plan that he predestined us and chose us, but I'm going to follow what Jesus tells me to do. We're not robots. We do have a choice, and yet we live in this beautiful tension and this beautiful idea that God has chosen us. God has predestined us before we ever choose him. We are chosen. We are predestined. Secondly, God seals us with his spirit. We have security in the spirit. Take a look at verses 13 to 14. Let me comment on this for a little bit. It says this, in him, you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, 
You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, in verse 14, it says that who is the guarantee? And then there's this little number next, so it's a little footnote. If you go down there, it says, or down payment. In other words, it's giving you a hint in this version of the Bible, the ESV, that that word is a rich word. It could mean a guarantee or it could mean a down payment. It also can be translated in one of your Bibles. It could say a deposit. It's a, it's a technical term. It's an economic term. And what we see is that when we choose to believe the good news and accept the gift of eternal life that God offers us, God marks us in three ways through the Holy Spirit. And the first way is that the Holy Spirit is a promise. The second is that the Holy Spirit is a seal. And the third is that the Holy Spirit is a down payment. And so I want to take a look first, though, at that the Holy Spirit is a promise of Jesus. In John chapters 14 through 16, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I'm promising you to send him after I leave. And that was in fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, prophecy from the book of Joel where they promised the Holy Spirit would come upon future generations, be a sign of God's presence, a sign of the inbreaking, the arrival of God's good kingdom. So that means that the very Spirit of Christ lives within each of us as followers of Christ. That's an amazing idea. God's very own Spirit lives in you, predestined and chosen ones, in Christ. It's a promise that God delivers on in Christ. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is a seal. In ancient times, people who were largely illiterate, uh, people would use a personalized wax seal on documents uh, for, for legal matters, economic matters. A wax seal, because people didn't do a signature like we do in this day and age, they used a wax seal. Now, God signifies that we are secure in him by sealing us with his spirit. Why would he use that word? Well, what happens, we get a picture in Revelation chapter 7, verse 4. God gives this man, John, a disciple, a vision. At the end of the ages, it says this, that those who had a seal on their foreheads were spared the destruction of God's judgment. In other words, God sends the Holy Spirit to seal his chosen ones because at the end of the ages, God will be sifting out those who are in him and those who are not. And those who have the seal of the Holy Spirit will be welcomed home in God's forever and eternal, perfect family. God is saying for those who are sealed in the Spirit, you are mine. We see the Spirit as a promise, secondly, a seal, and thirdly, He's a guarantee. That's what we see in, in verse 14, the Spirit who is the guarantee, the Spirit who is the down payment, the Spirit who is the deposit. We're going to dig into that now. Now, my family bought a minivan last summer, and I must say, in minivan land, it's amazing. I never knew cup holders can be so incredible, and there's a vacuum inside. I heard it works, and it's amazing what this minivan life can do for you. And I know it makes me look really cool, too, to be driving the minivan. Now, the bank, in my instance, required a down payment in order to acquire this minivan. And to secure this car, I had to make a 
deposit to guarantee that I would keep making payments throughout the years. I think it's like five years, 60 months, something like that, okay? I made a deposit to guarantee I would keep making payments. Now, I'm a frail human being, imperfect. I could miss a payment or stop making payments. You know what would happen? If I stopped making payments, I would not only lose the car, I lose my deposit too, because that's how life works. The bank takes back the car because I defaulted on my promise. Now, here's the thing. Who's the one making the guarantee in verse 14? You? No. God. God is the one making the deposit. God has a lot of riches. He's not going to default, is he? God is the one making the down payment. And what is he securing? A minivan? You. He's putting a guarantee on you that you belong to me. Amazing. Now, the word for guarantee is a particular Greek word. It's the word aragon. And this word in ancient times meant that it was a deposit that bound both the buyer and bound the seller. You got to pay attention to this. Because if the buyer defaulted, he had to return the item he bought and he lost his aragon. Right? Just like today. And he loses his deposit. And if the seller fails to deliver a good product, he had to pay double the Aragon back to the buyer. Double the deposit. And so here's the amazing thing. God is both the buyer and the seller. Don't you see this? God is guaranteeing your security. He's the buyer who puts the deposit down. He's the buyer who has endless riches, which means he's not going to default on the payment. But he's also the seller. He's saying, and if I'm not good to my word, I'm going to give double the Aragon back to you. He's guaranteeing the transaction. God's the buyer and the seller. God is saying, I put down a deposit. I'm good to fulfill my promise. I have set the debt price. And I've paid the debt. Do you get this? He set the terms of what was needed, and then he paid the price himself. He's good to his word. And God is saying, I have endless resources, and so defaulting is not an option. And even if I could default, I'd pay double the ransom to buy your freedom again. There's nothing I wouldn't do to secure you, is what Paul is saying, God is saying to us. I'm coming back to make my forever home with you. I guarantee it, God says. I guarantee it on my own word. I'm coming back for you, chosen ones, for all who are in Christ. Take a look at verse 11 as we wrap up here. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. You see, as God's adopted sons... We now are legally heirs of God's unlimited riches, not only in the future, but what did Paul say here? We have obtained. We have it now. It's present, not just future. We have already inherited God's unlimited riches, not only in the future. Now, here's th two things, though. 
Paul's use of this idea of inheritance could be interpreted in two different ways. I'm going to highlight the first one. The first one is what we just talked about. It's our inheritance of God's amazing grace, right? God's love, God's eternal home he's offering, but not just in the future, but right now the security we have in him, the love we can experience, the deposit of the Holy Spirit, right? Securing us right now, our inheritance. We're receiving all of God's blessings, right? But there's a second way to understand this inheritance. And the second way is understanding it as God's inheritance, that we are the inheritance that God receives. It's both ideas, perhaps. Now, when Katie and I got married over 20 years ago, oh, look at that beautiful kid over there. Over 20 years, I got married, Baylor Presbyterian Church. Katie had every detail planned, including the 300 candles, which you can't see in this picture, which was a fire hazard and against all the fire codes. But we made it. Nothing burned down. She planned the 300 candles. She planned the wedding cake. Look at this cake. She baked it and decorated herself the day before our wedding. Okay? She had everything. There were different flavors. There were different flowers. It's unbelievable. She even planned Asian Elvis to come. Now, Asian Elvis is my dad. That's my dad. Asian Elvis was there. With no surprise, she planned that detail for all of our 500 guests at our small wedding. Okay? Now, but there was one thing she didn't know. She planned every single detail, but in the middle of the ceremony, oh, I had a plan. And my plan, sing her song that wasn't on the schedule because I wrote the song and I sang her the song. And you can't see it in here, but she is crying and she's crying and she's mad at me because I'm ruining her makeup for the pictures, <laughs> right? So you all, some of you know this. She didn't want to cry. She didn't want to be surprised. Can't surprise that picture. Surprised her. Now, here's the thing. She was mad at me and crying, but happy, because I wrote these lyrics declaring my love for my bride, declaring my commitment. I was extolling her beauty. What's not to love about that, right? That's what I was. It was a special surprise gift I was giving to my lovely bride. Now, here's the thing. The Bible says God's a singer, too. Zephaniah 3.17, you know what he sings about? He sings about how much he loves that he has won you back to him. He sings a, a sense of love song that you belong to him, that you're my chosen ones, that you're going to be in my forever family of love. And so what that means is that we not only get God's riches, we get the inheritance but that God considers us his riches. God considers us his inheritance, that we not only receive God's treasure, but he calls you in Christ. You are his treasure. Let that sink in. And that perhaps as we read the section of Ephesians, we hear a little song of God, that he chose us, that he's loved us and saw us even before the foundation of the world. And he's predestined us to be in him. Ephesians 1.10 says God's goal is to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Messiah Jesus. And notice it's not in Buddha, is it? It's not in Muhammad, is it? It's not in Mother Nature where God says at the end of all time he will unite all things in Jesus. In the one who made 
every one of those galaxies that we're only seeing a tiny, tiny, tiny speck of with our human abilities. That no other explanation for death and life or purpose and pain makes more sense than having an all-powerful and yet personal God who at the end of time you unite all things in him and in whom? In Jesus the Christ who came and laid down his life for you. He was the down payment. He was the ransom price. And now because when we confess Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit seals us. He is the deposit. He is the guarantee of what is to come. And so friends, some of you today might be listening might be watching, and you're struggling to know that you're secure in him. We want you to know if you confess Jesus as Lord, that means you're being sealed in the Spirit. And the Spirit is God's own guarantee that he's good to his word. You're not alone. That, That there's purpose in your pain. That there's meaning in the madness. That there's hope in the midst of feeling lost. Do you believe it? I'm going to pray for you that you would. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for reaching out to us, Lord, this amazing story that you have woven, that you love us into being, that you delight in us, your creation, that you've spared no expense to get us back when we went astray. And Lord, thank you that you sent your own son to rescue us. And now you're inviting us in to follow you, to join you on this rescue mission so that others might find their true purpose and stories in you, Jesus. God, thank you. Help us to soak in this reality that you have sung a love song over us and welcomed us home. Lord, I pray for anyone right now listening who maybe has never confessed you as Lord, that in faith that they would take that step and say, I believe, I will respond, Jesus, I want to follow you. Forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for believing I could earn my way or forgive me for believing I could ignore you altogether. Come into my life. Welcome in, Holy Spirit. Seal me. Thank you for making me one of yours. And for all of us who maybe prayed that years ago, may we renew our commitment to believe the truth about us that our forever home is secure, our future, and for right now, we've already, already obtained this inheritance. Lord, help us to live into that today. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.